fun. I want to show a quick video. It's only a minute and a little bit. Uh, if uh, our AV booth could help me click and play uh, the video, and then I'll continue on with the sermon. Awesome job. You know what I'm thinking? Snack time. <laughs> Hey, let's see what we have here. Which one do you want? That wasn't nice of Rachel. Where did she pick up those greedy tendencies? Taking both apples and biting into them. That's so unlike her. Great, thank you. How true is that example uh, of us? Uh, that often we judge or we make a judgment upon someone or something or uh, some organization, whatever it might be, uh, before uh, we understand uh, the, uh, the situation or, or the context of it. I know I've definitely been there before. A couple couple weeks ago, I was uh, watching the news uh, update for COVID, and they came up with a new mask uh, that reveals your mouth. Uh, have you seen those? It's a, it's, it's a normal mask, but then it's a, it's a see-through mask. Uh, uh, a plastic uh, right over the mouth, and I thought it was kind of strange because the person was standing in the back, and I, I thought it was a painting or something, you know, over the mask. But I found out that uh, someone from our church actually is part of the work uh, of helping the deaf community see the lips, uh, because when you're covered over, you can't read lips. Uh, and how quick was I to judge how, how silly that looked? Uh, I've definitely been there before, and maybe you would have found yourself to be in a similar situation before. Well, the passage today talks all about church unity. And it talks about, talks about us as a church coming together as his people. And the big idea for us today uh, is, is, is this, is, is this that uh, church unity results first from a personal decision and responsibility and not uh, first a collective one. I want to say that again, that church unity results first from a personal decision and responsibility. And then it affects the collective, it affects the rest of the congregation and the church. I'm titling the sermon this morning at the I in unity, uh, because even though there's no I in team, uh, there is I in <laughs> unity, uh, that you can find the word letter I in unity, and that's because unity starts with you. You see what I did there? Thank you. Church unity results, results first from a personal decision, a responsibility that starts with you, because each and every single one of us matter in building up the church a community and the church unity. Each and every one of us, in uh, one of us, is personally responsible for the unity of our church, and that's where Paul pivots to towards today, as he was talking about love and speaking about love the last couple of chapters, uh, and it moves here into church unity. And uh, today we're going to see two principles uh, of what allows unity. Then we'll end with three quick principles 
of how we can build up this unity within the church. If you're looking for them, I'll give it to you straight out now. Unity principle number one, church unity is only possible when we see from God's perspective and not our own. Unity principle number two, focusing on Jesus is vital for unity. And the three ways that we're going to live this out and build up the church is live in a way that protects your brothers and sisters in Christ. Number two, don't focus on superficial matters, but on heart matters. And number three, keep the spiritual growth of others in mind. So we'll go over those points. Uh, I know I went over that pretty fast uh, in the rest of the sermon. But we read this in the beginning uh, of this chapter in, in Romans chapter 14. If you can click to the next slide for me, Romans chapter 14, uh, verse 1 to 3. Uh, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. We giggled about that at the beginning of service, so I'll talk about that a little bit more. The one who eats everything must not, treat, uh, must not treat with contempt the other who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. I just want to get it out of the way right there that we're not saying vegetarians are weak people. All right, nor do I think it's the context of this passage. In fact, I think you've got to be pretty strong to eat vegetables only. I do not have that willpower myself. So that's not what the passage is saying here, that vegetarians are weak people. But it's important for us to understand why the Apostle Paul talks about this. See, it's not just about eating or drinking. It's rather in the, in the Jewish understanding, Jewish faith, of how important it is of what you decide to put into your body. Because what you eat can either make you clean or unclean. And it's taken pretty seriously, actually, all the way to this day. You go into any uh, large supermarket this, uh, to this day, and you see what, what, what aisle, what section. It's the kosher section. That It's the kosher aisle of, of the meats are prepared in the right way, uh, that when you eat, you don't uh, make yourself unclean. And remember the context of the church in, in Rome, that there were Jewish people there already uh, that came before the gospel uh, did in Rome. So the church in Rome was mixed with with a mix of cultures between those that practiced, uh, that, that were in the Jewish practices and, and practiced that daily, and those that were more attuned to the Roman culture and the Roman ways. So, how are we to understand this concept of strong and the weak in this first passage here? And how does this pertain to church unity? Well, we're talking about the strong and weak, not physically, but doctrinally. That's our understanding here, that Paul is talking about those that are strong and weak doctrinally. And what's interesting is that those that are seen as strong, those that think they are strong, are actually weak because it stops them from doing certain things. And those that are weak are actually strong. So Paul flips it around uh, in this context. And, and we see here that those who are strong, uh, as many other uh, writings like in 1 Corinthians that Paul talks about, that those who are strong can actually eat anything. Uh, that Because their conscience is clear, their faith is in Jesus, uh, that nothing uh, can unblemish, nothing can make uh, un make something unclean that God has already deemed clean. We read that in, in Acts. So we see here that Paul flips it around, that those that think they're strong actually are weak, and those that are weak actually are strong. Uh, our team, uh, this was quite a few years ago, probably over a decade. We were training for a missions trip uh, to somewhere overseas, and we knew that Buddhist culture was going to be quite prevalent there, so we decided to train ourselves here in terms of how to pray for those in that faith and in that religion. And our team, a group of five of us, decided it would be a good idea to go down to the local Buddhist temple, uh, right down the block, 49th and Fraser, uh, right then 
in there. And we thought that, well, if we're going to go into the dark spiritual forces overseas, we might as well live that out here because missions isn't just overseas, it's right here in the everyday. So we walked over there boldly and we walked into uh, the local Buddhist temple right there. And I think the monks were, on, the monks were onto us uh, pretty quick in terms, of what, in terms of what's going on. But we thought that if we're called to be the light of the world, then why not do this in our own backyard, right? Why not do this right in South Hill? Now imagine you're driving down 49th and you saw this group of people from our church walking into a Buddhist temple. Temple, what would you have thought? Or if you didn't go to our church, you didn't know us, what would you have thought? You might have thought that this is a group of people going to a Buddhist temple uh, to worship. It's easy to, to make that judgment. It's easy to, uh, to, to see that of what's on the surface. Or maybe entertain this idea with me for a moment. What if I changed the context there and you were driving by or you're on the bus and you saw me at a bar? What would, you have, what would you be thinking? Or you see me walking down an alley in the downtown east side. What's the first thing on your mind? Or talking to a woman standing on the corner of Kingsway. What's the first thing that's on your mind? Or what if I'm in Walmart holding 48 Lysol, cans of Lysol? As I'm standing there waiting to, get, to, to check out those rolls of Lysol, what would you be thinking? Unity principle number one from this first section of passage is church unity is only possible when you see from God's perspective and not our own. When you see from God and what he sees and how he sees the world and how he is orchestrating the world, when we see the world and we see through God's eyes, that's when church unity is possible. And we see here in verses 1 through 3 that we are to receive each other in the way that God has already received us. That we are to receive each other as God received us. And the key word in these uh, first three verses is accepted. And this word means to extend a welcome or to receive someone into your home. So God has welcomed us home. God has welcomed us into his kingdom. In the same way, we ought to accept other brothers and sisters in Christ in the same way. We are to receive others in the church in the same way as God has received us. Now, specifically in this context uh, of this passage, Christian fellowship, Christian unity is not based on food. That's what Paul's trying to get at. It's not based on the food you eat, the clothes you wear, or the religious calendars that you follow. In the same way, our church unity isn't based on superficial matters. And I love this quote from St. Augustine. He says this, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, that's the way we ought to interact with others in the church, in the Christian community, that there's this unity amongst us, that in the essential things, that Jesus is Lord, yes, you know, the church is the light of the world, yes. God is Father, yes. He empowers us and comforts us through the Spirit. Trinity, yes. But in non-essential things, the color of the carpet, maybe the way that we serve and are in a welcome team and the, our setup that we have, these non-essential things, give some liberty, give some leeway to it. But in all things, charity, show a grace. Show a grace that God has given us because we are to receive each other in the same way that God has received us. Now, are we to encourage each other and to correct and to rebuke each other? Definitely, we'll get into that in the edification and building up part uh, later. But we must not condemn uh, the strong for those of us who are strong and, and call them unspiritual for following God's law. Because God has called us to follow God's law. Yet the strong of us that are maybe strong doctrinally must not look down on the weak and call them immature because we're also called to love uh, and to lead them into this 
understanding. No matter whether you're strong or you're weak, God has received them both. After all, in verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant to their own master? Servants stand or fall, and they will stand. Why? Because the Lord is able to make them stand. The success of our, our Christian life does not depend on the opinions or the attitudes of other Christians. God is the judge. He's the sole uh, person that sits on the judgment seat. Only God can say something, whether something stands or false. God is the judge, judge and we're all going to be held accountable for our actions, for our thoughts, and for, for our words. But my convictions and, and our, our belief about something or someone doesn't actually determine whether it's right or wrong. God, God does. Right? Like God is the, the, the sole judge. He is the determiner of, of some, whether something is right or wrong. And I, I get this uh, idea here in this passage that we ought to be busy being servants, uh, that we ought to be busy serving God, that we are God's servants. And if we're occupied with serving Christ, then we'll be too occupied to judge others. I think that's kind of what Paul is getting at. That there's an underlying understanding here that as Christians, we're all meant to serve the Lord, and it is the Lord who justifies, and it is the Lord who gives us a strength. So for those of us who are struggling in our service and in, in, in church and also outside of the church and loving other people, God is the word that matters. That he is the one that encourages you. He is the one that says you are loved. He is the one that says you matter, that you are making a difference. Yes, we need to be encouraged by other brothers and sisters in, in, in the church. But ultimately, our worth is founded in Jesus and not in the words of humanity. Verse 5 continues. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to the Lord. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves only, and none of us dies for ourselves only. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You might have noticed in the reading of this passage that the word, the title, Lord, appears at least seven times that I've counted in these verses. That would be an important observation if you notice that. And that leads to our second principle of, of unity. And it's this, that focusing on Jesus is vital. Focusing on Jesus is vital for unity. Jesus needs to be at the center of everything in all that we do as a church. The point here is to let everything we're doing really be for the Lord, not for someone else, not to get fame, and not to get attention, not to seek other people's approval, or to do things for the sake of doing things, because it's traditionally what we do. No, we do things unto the Lord. Everything is for the Lord. Focusing on Jesus is vital for unity. And our churches, uh, all churches, I, I would argue, have traditions that aren't necessarily biblical. Uh, I was listening to a podcast, and the speaker mentioned how back in the day, this was probably 40 years ago, uh, 30, 40 years ago or so, that it was a big deal that churches decided to have multi-congregations, uh, to have different service times. That, that, that was almost seen as blasphemous. That was like unheard of. You do not split the congregation because that's what it is. When you move your service, 
your 10 a.m. service to 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., you have just split the church. And that was a hot, contentious topic uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, where we think about the worship wars, right? It's hard to imagine the organ, which we have here, was seen at one point as the devil's instrument. Or the guitar, or whatever it is that, that, we, ha- that, that, that we use now in, in worship. At there's certain points where we, the church would split over uh, these things. Or, get this, there was, that, there was a time when Christians were opposed to Christian radio. Now, 106.5 is playing Christmas music all the way through the new year. I'm not sure what you think about that. But Christian radio, the radio was seen as a sort of evil. Why? Because the whole theology was based upon Ephesians 2, 1-2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed what? The ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That everything in the air was evil. (laughs) The radio was over the air. So that is of the devil's instrument. Focusing on Jesus is vital for unity. Not on anything else, but on Jesus. When we focus our eyes on Jesus, that's when we know we're going in the right, right direction. Because I believe this to be true. The church is divided not because of different opinions, the church is divided when Jesus is no, is no longer Lord. That's when the church divides. That's when the church splits. That's when there is uh, tension and argument and people go in their different directions, not from different opinions, but because Jesus is no longer the center. That Jesus is no longer Lord. Maybe John chapter 21 will help paint a, a, a clearer picture uh, for us uh, this morning. I love this scene. It was after Jesus died and he rose again. And he's walking around showing people that he's alive and that he's well. And Peter and some of the other disciples went back uh, to doing what they knew best, which was fishing. So they're out fishing all day and, and they're trying to catch some fish. And then they meet Jesus, who they didn't know. And Jesus asked if they caught anything and they said no. And Jesus gives a fishing lesson to the fishermen uh, at that point and tells them, well, you should throw your net to the right side of the boat because the right side was the right side uh, for them to catch fish. And they say, it's the Lord. They recognize that's Jesus at that point. And Peter jumps into the water and swims towards uh, Jesus. They have a wonderful breakfast of fish on the beach. And then we move into verses 15 to 25 where Jesus reinstates Peter. Remember that scene? Peter, do you love me? Then feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Then take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? feed my sheep. Then Jesus tells Peter again for the second time, perhaps maybe even the third as some theologians would argue, to follow him because they asked him in the very beginning of the gospel narrative and now he's asking him to follow him again even though Peter's rejected and denounced Jesus. And Peter says, I'm going to follow you. But what astounds me even more is uh, Peter's reply to Jesus in verse 20 and 21, then Peter says this to Jesus. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus uh, at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? So I'm going to follow, follow him, like you're going to say to me, but what about this guy, right? You know, what about this John guy over there? Like, I don't know about this guy, but is he a real disciple? And, and, and Jesus replies in verse 22, Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? What is it to you? What is that to you? You must follow me. You must follow me. 
when we find something we don't agree with another Christian about, I believe this principle applies here. I believe Christ is saying the same thing to us. What is it to you of what they're doing? Yes, we're to love each other, we're to encourage, and we're to correct, but what is it to you? You follow Christ first. Energy would be better spent living for the Lord than tearing down other Christians, than judging others and telling them what they're doing wrong. Because again, the passage continues, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. As we focus on Jesus, as Jesus becomes our centrality of our personal walk and of our faith, as focusing on Jesus becomes vital for church unity, each and every single one of us, we need to worry about our own walk with Jesus. Don't worry about so, so much about someone else, but worry first about ourselves and how we are following Jesus, whether we're following the word, whether we are following Jesus as Lord. You might have seen, noticed here at the end of verse 10, it says here that for we all, all, uh, we, we, we all stand before God's uh, judgment seat here. And this word for judgment seat is a place that judges stood during the athletic games. That's the understanding. Uh, there's a judge overlooking games and the races, and they're looking for uh, anyone that's, uh, that's not playing by the rules. Uh, and in the moment that they're, they're, they break the rules, they're immediately disqualified from this judgment seat. But I worry for many of us that we're worried about other people when we are disqualifying ourselves and that we're not following God in the utmost way that we can. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 9, 27, where Paul says, No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, after I proclaim the gospel to the others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Jesus has to be center of the church. And Jesus has, has to, it, focusing on Jesus is vital for church unity. Not on what other people are doing, but we need to start first with ourselves. Now, how do we prepare ourselves for when Jesus will come and he will judge and he will see us and he will reveal our hearts fully before him? How can we prepare for that moment? And I think it starts today. It starts by making Jesus Lord. It starts by obeying him in all things. And instead of judging other Christians, what if we made sure we judge our own lives first and we get ourselves ready to meet Jesus? It reminds me of my time in seminary when I met some interesting people in seminary and I was invited over to another seminarian's house to have a time of uh, fellowship, a time of prayer, scripture, and just hanging out as what seminarians do, I guess, on a Friday, uh, a Friday, a Friday evening. Uh, but what else I also found out was like, hey, Doug, do you want to come over and talk theology? But do you want, want, want to also come over for a glass of whiskey? Oh, interesting. Theology and whiskey. Interesting. Oh, not only theology and whiskey, but do you want to come and share uh, a cigar? Interesting a night of talking theology, a glass of whiskey, and smoking a cigar. What's fascinating in the church world and in church history, as you look back, did you know that Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian, he smoked cigars? 
Or Joseph Parker, another prominent theologian and pastor at the time, went to the theater, and they disagreed on this because they called each other unspiritual. You go to the theater, you're unspiritual. Well, you smoke cigars, you're unspiritual. And they went back and forth. Who is right? Who is wrong? I don't know. I'm not saying you should smoke cigars or not smoke cigars. I'm not making any judgment on that. What I'm saying is I don't know, but what I do know is I need to worry about my own walk. What's going to cause me to fall away from the faith? What's going to cause me from walking away from Jesus? What's going to distract me and be a stumbling block for me? Because that's where it leaves us here. That's where Paul leaves us. Because you're thinking, well, it sounds like we should just mind our own business, right? And we should just focus on Jesus and the church should be united. Like, if we care about nothing, then, ne- and then everything will be, be okay. Is that really what Paul is saying? Not, not exactly. We're also meant to encourage, to edify, and to build up each other. There's a reason why you're at this specific church at this specific time. You're here for a specific reason that only God can really reveal to you. And maybe it comes out in community as we discern together, but God has called you here for a specific time and reason. But to move into this last three points here of how we can edify and encourage the church, I think there's some pointers for us here. Romans 13, uh, 14, 13 continues, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put, up, put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. The idea here is this, that Christian as a Christian, you impact and you have an effect on other people around you. That Christians affect one another. What you do affects the other people in our church, in our community, in the pew you're sitting on, in the same room, the Zoom room that you are tuning into, that affects the people around you. And we're urged to live not just thinking about ourselves, but about the person next to you. So how do we build up the people around us is this. Live in a way that protects your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you got to keep them in mind. You have to keep the people around you in mind in the decisions that you make. Maybe the decisions that you make will protect the unity of the church, will protect and grow the church. And perhaps the question in our decisions is not so much of how does this affect me, but hey, like if, I, if I do this, if I take this next step, if I make this decision, how will it affect my brother and sister in Christ? How will that grow our church unity? How will that grow our love for one another? It says here, make up your mind beforehand. Before you do that, you're not going to cause anyone else to stumble. Or in the words of Paul here, will your eating destroy someone else from whom Christ has died? Like, will my actions destroy someone else? We have to think in that way. We have to understand that as we understand church, church unity. And back in seminary, again, I had so many interesting conversations. Like, I, I was talking to people about tattoos. Is tattoo, are tattoos biblical? Is it right or wrong? And, and there's, I was sitting across from two men. One had tattoos and the other didn't. And one person was looking to become a, a missionary overseas and thought that tattoos would be a stumbling block to the people that he's trying to reach. So therefore, he chose not to have tattoos, even though he thought there was nothing wrong. 
The other worked in the inner city. And he worked with gangs. And he worked in the downtown east side. And he had numerous tattoos across his body. And he found that these tattoos were great conversation starters because each and every single tattoo was deliberate and intentional in sharing the gospel. Live in a way that protects your brothers and sisters in Christ. Know the context, know the need, know the people around you. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. The second way of helping to build up the church and helping to build up unity is to not focus on superficial matters, but on heart matters. That in your engagement with your, uh, with, with your people in your life group, and your fellowship, and the people at church, and you see on Sundays, on the telephone, uh, at the coffee shop, wherever it may be, don't focus on superficial matters, but ask heart questions. Focus on heart matters. How? Not on focusing on the surface, but digging deep by being authentic yourself. Do things that build up your relationship with God, with one another. Read scripture, pray, share about deeper things. Not just only how the day is going or how your week went, but go deeper into that, how you're, you're feeling, how God has impacted you. What is Jesus saying to you? In, in your devos, how has, how has God spoken to you? Well, what is God doing in your life right now? Don't talk about superficial matters in building. That doesn't build up the church. It only builds up the church superficially. Do heart things. Dig deep in heart matters. And maybe this illustration will, will help us. You're like, what, what am I looking at uh, here in this picture? Well, this is actually a church. Uh, this is a church in Ethiopia built in the 12th or 13th century in a, t- a town called Lalibela. And there are 11 Ethiopian Orthodox churches that looked exactly like this. And what I love about the picture of this church is that instead of building up, they decided to build down. That they carved this church through the red volcanic rock that the ground is out, out of, made out of. That this is the church of Biete Georgis, where many pilgrims come and visit, and you have to follow a trench to walk all the way down. And this is built straight out of volcanic rock, carved by human hands, and with the tools that they were given. LFC, what if the way we build up the church isn't to build it up, but by digging deep? Digging deep down with one another in relationship with the tools that he's given us, with the people that he has. Digging deep in authenticity. Digging deep in conversation. Digging deep in vulnerability. That this is what we're called to do. Yes, this church may be a marvel. It's, it's, a, it's a protected heritage site of the, in the world. But I believe as we dig deep as Christians in unity with one another, that is attractive as a church. That the fellowship and unity we have with one another, that is attractive. And this is the kind of church that draws people to God. It draws people to, to marvel and wonder that there's a sanctuary and a church full of people that are so different. Yet because of Jesus and what he has done, we stand together with one another. So focus not on superficial matters, but dig deep into heart matters. Thirdly, as I continue in verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. 
And this is the third and final way. I'm sure there's more in this text, but for this morning, the third and final way of how to build, help build up the church and to build up unity is really for you to keep the spiritual growth of others in mind. That if you really love the brothers and sisters in this church, you will help others grow in their faith by doing whatever it is that you can. Because I know this to be true, that every one of us here and watching online, we all need to grow. And me included, I'm saying that first. That we all need to grow spiritually. The strong and mature need to grow in their capacity to love one another and to lead and to to usher and to be gentle. The weak and the young in faith, those that are weak and young in faith and those believers need to grow in their knowledge and their understanding in who this God is that we follow. That we need this knowledge to understand who this God is, to build not for knowledge's sake, but a knowledge of, of this God we follow so that we can have a relationship, this relationship with God. Like our, our, our apartment right now is baby-proof, or as baby-proof as it could be. I feel uh, uh, bad for Ryan because our, with our first Cohen, our whole house was wrapped in bubble wrap, it felt like. And now we're like, well, we'll put some on the corners and it should be okay. Uh, <laughs> but our place is, 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 is baby-proof. Uh, but here's the thing. Like, this is only for a stage, right? It's only for a moment. Our, our daughter is a year, almost a year and a half. It's only for a stage. We don't need to baby-proof the apartment. Hopefully, when they're, uh, when they're at, uh, later on in elementary, I really hope I don't need to baby-proof the apartment when he's a teenager, he or she a teenager, or when they're university. And, can, can you imagine? It's like, oh, why do they have baby-proofing? Oh, it's for my teenage son, right? Like, no, like that, that's, no that's, that's not right. Uh, there's something off with that picture. Like, we shouldn't want to remain babies forever, that for us, we, we grow and we move, uh, that we don't always just crave spiritual milk, but we need to eat a real spiritual food. And as young, young Christians, we need that kind of fellowship that, that we're, we're older, more mature men and women will protect us in their faith and encourage us to grow. And these older Christians, if you call yourself more mature of the faith, we need to love and be patient and show care to these young believers in the faith and not cause them to stumble. Not cause them to stumble and to set the right example for them to live. Because that's exactly what Jesus did when he lived on this earth. He did not live a life that pleased himself, as we read later on in chapter 15, but he was selfless. He was sacrificial. He loved everyone around him. Jesus embodied unity and what it looks like to love and what it looks like to show grace all the way up to the cross when he was dying in an unjust death, and he still said, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That is my prayer that we will live out in our church. That's the unity that I call for, that the Bible calls for, for us to live out here this morning. And I want to end this morning by reading a little bit more in, in chapter 15. Sorry, it's chapter, Romans chapter 15, not Romans chapter 14. And this is a benediction that the Apostle Paul gives, and then I'll have the worship team come up. I know we technically give the benediction at the end, but it's so fitting here that this is the charge from the text itself this morning. So this is the benediction and the call and the blessing and the charge for us as we go out this morning. It says later, later on in Romans 15, 3, even Christ did not please himself. So may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that the one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another 
then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Amen.